Greetings. You're listening to the Bonnie Boat Sailing Podcast. My name is Chris Smith. Whether you're a grizzled old salt, pining for the days of wire rope halyards, or a greenhorn, wondering what the hell a dolphin striker is, this is the podcast that seeks to fill the need for everybody's third most favorite pastime. That is, talking about sailing. Greetings, good people of the internet. I hope this audio recording finds you well. Today I have for you a conversation I had with author, sailor, and marine surveyor James Elfers. He wrote a book called Blue Water Sailing on a Budget, which is a deep dive into the process of evaluating and purchasing a cruising sailboat. Uh, And I found both the book and my conversation with Jim to be full of some, some great insights. We dig into some pitfalls to watch out for in the buying process, strategy for negotiating a purchase price, Uh, the process of a marine survey, and some special considerations for older boats in particular. Uh, This is a great episode, a lot of good information, and if you find the experience that Jim has to share helpful, I highly recommend his book. Uh, And for all of you on the west coast of North America, we get into a little bit about the Baja Bash towards the end, so stick around for that. Uh, And without further preamble on my part, I give you Mr. James Elfers. So, uh, you know, first off, Jim, I wanted to I wanted to thank you for the, taking the time to speak with me today. And you've written a book called Blue Water Sailing on a Budget, uh, which I found to be an excellent read, very informative. Uh, and, I, and I think I should lead by saying that, that anyone listening who finds uh, what you have to say interesting on the podcast should should certainly check out the book because uh, our, our conversation will certainly not be able to go into the detail uh, and information that's that's contained there. Um but with that being said, I thought maybe we could start with some of your personal sailing background. And you mentioned in the book that you uh, built a plywood trimaran at the age of 24 and, and took off sailing. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's correct. I learned to sail uh, on San Francisco Bay uh, while I was in college. Um, basically, really hadn't sailed much at all until until that uh, time frame. And then... Um, you know, my mom liked to say uh, that I majored in avoiding the real world. So when I graduated in '84, <laughs> I uh, I had two or three job offers. Um, one of them was uh, crewing on a 96-foot Sparkman and Stevens design owned by a family out of Newport Beach. Um, they had had the boat, you know, custom built for them, and uh, they were looking for someone who spoke uh, French and could also uh, be a tutor for their two boys. So to make a long story short, that was the job I, quote unquote, job that I picked. And I flew in to the med uh, and uh, crewed on her for about about four months. Um, and ultimately, for various reasons, and I, and I left before uh, the Red Sea portion started. But that was an amazing experience, of course. And when I came back, I had a little money saved up, and between that and my um, my 1968 Mustang convertible, I was able to kind of parlay that into getting the hulls for a uh, 37-foot Sea Runner trimaran. Uh, I did have the hulls already built on that boat, but mm-hmm. there was still there was still a lot to be done. I found it in a place called Half Moon Bay and ended up. Uh, 
I ended up uh, doing all the rigging myself, the engine installation myself, um, really learned everything, well, a lot about boat building with that 37-footer. And then I left um, at age 24, like you said, for Mexico with about, oh, maybe literally four or $500 and a smile on my face. <laughs> I was just kind of determined <laughs> to go. And I had only, I remember distinctly, I had just a depth sounder and a VHF. That's all I had. Uh, and it was, you know, it was, I knew it was going to be coastal cruising, so... I did the old dead reckoning, reckon right or you're dead, you know, navigation. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it worked out pretty good. There were a couple times where I thought I was someplace that I wasn't and uh, and uh, ended up going all the way to La Paz. One reason I left with very little money was because I thought I had a job waiting for me, but it turned out that the job, you know, was not uh, quite what I'd hoped. But anyway, that was my first parlay and, and foray into um, – into boat building, and later on, about four years after that, I did a 34-foot sea runner, which was an epoxy boat, which is uh, a much better uh, building method than the first boat, which was polyester resin. Gotcha, gotcha. And is that uh, is that second boat still sailing? Uh, I would imagine so, but the amazing thing about uh, Mithril, which was the name of the first one, M-I-T-H-R-I-L from Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. I, I saw that boat uh, come up on Yacht World about two years ago in the South Pacific. So, wow. so somebody, yeah, somebody has sailed it all the way across uh, to the South Pacific. And, you know, multi-hulls in general are very good downwind uh, boats, especially between about 30 degrees north and 30 degrees south. But I wouldn't recommend them to go commuting around Cape Horn. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> cool. That's quite a. That sounds like a. That was that was a good adventure. Um, so, if, so fast forward a little bit, and you you you're working in Taiwan in the in the boat building industry there. Um, so what was it like uh, living and working overseas like that? And what kind of insights into the kind of the you know the production boat building process did that give you? Well, I never actually did live in Taiwan. I flew over for uh, basically what are considered uh, progress uh, surveys, inspections. Mm -hmm. So I was really living in Mexico where I lived for 17 years and I kind of had connected into the, the mega yacht, uh, world because there are quite a few wealthy Mexicans and they, I, I don't know if it's a status symbol or not, but, uh, to have a blue eyed blonde gringo skippering your yacht is kind of a status thing down there, I think. And gotcha, so gotcha. <laughs> that's what I was doing. sort of like, you know, if you want to be a mega yacht captain on the West coast, uh, it's better to have an Australian accent. They just seem right, to like the, right. the Aussies. <laughs> so, so. Anyway, um, I did fly over for several clients, to uh, mostly to Kaohsiung, and that was a real eye-opening experience. I learned a lot. Uh, at the time, I was uh, the one that I did most frequently was an 80-footer built um, by a small company called Grand Harbor Yachts, which was uh, started by the former foreman of Horizon Yachts. But anyway, to make a long story short, there's – there's a lot of different quality Taiwanese boats out there. I mean, in my book, I talk about that a little bit, but the, like the Tiana 37 and then Hans Christians and so forth. But, um, you know, I've had some conversations with Robert Perry. He always had a, a funny line about, uh, you know, in, in the high Alps of, of Taiwan, they, they built the Hans Christian, you know, 41 or whatever, because <laughs> it's all marketing, you know. I mean, the Hans Christian, a lot of people buy those, and they, they actually think they're built in Scandinavia. Right, but, right. <laughs> but the uh, same with Nordhaven powerboats. But uh, the, the quality is all over the map. Um, the main thing I look for as a surveyor in Taiwanese boats is I'm always skeptical about tanks, fuel tanks especially, because the, the stainless can be questionable the wells can be questionable 
the quality of the wiring is usually not as good. Um, and of course the glues, if the glues are not quality glues, then you have problems with the teak decks. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, just, a things that are pretty well known. I mean, the biggest tool ever invented really is the internet. So a lot of people are able to do, you know, some pretty good research on the internet. Yeah. And, and would you say in general for, for Taiwanese built boats that kind of like heavier traditional designs are, are a safe bet for them and at the end, like the, the more technical, um, like structural kind of epoxy work stuff was, was more of an issue over there? Well, there isn't a whole lot of high-tech boat building that I'm aware of being done in Taiwan. And, and frankly, the scary part is that 3 or $4 an hour is now considered too expensive to build in Taiwan. So there, there's really been a big falling off, and, and a lot of the boat building has shifted to uh, mainland China because you can still get boats built for $2 an hour labor there, So, um, which is a scary thought. but uh, And in general, new boat, new boat purchases have gone way, way down. And part of that is because fiberglass, you know, essentially a fiberglass hull will last indefinitely, you know, and they, the boats just keep changing hands cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And so you you can get a perfectly sound in terms of the hull, perfectly sound, you know, Cal 34 that's 40 years old uh, that you buy for 10 grand that would have sold, you know, when it was new, would have sold obviously for a lot more. So um, that kind of brings the whole least common denominator effect into play and people just get boats so cheap that they have a hard time justifying buying a brand new boat. So I know there's a lot of former dealers for Taiwanese boats that are, you know, they've, they've gone out of business. It's just very few. Now, the powerboat market's a little different. There's still new powerboats, especially trawlers. There's a trend towards true single engine trawlers, which is a true trawler as mm -hmm. opposed to twin, twin diesel. And there is still a market for that. But Brand new sailboats, not a whole lot of them being built anywhere. And, and the Taiwanese market in Kaohsiung has dropped off quite a bit. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and so now, so now you, and you work as a marine surveyor, a surveyor and, a, and a buyer's agent also. Is, is that right? Right. That's primarily what I do. Um, I only act as a buyer's agent maybe three times a year, four times a year. What will happen is I'll build up a certain relationship with a client during the survey process. And if, uh, if they decide... It has a you know if it has a bad survey or whatever they decide they're not going to buy it they can't get the price they want then sometimes they do ask me to act as their agent on another boat and you know I generally I'm not pushing that because it would be a, you know a big conflict but if it happens and and we they understand uh, the relationship then I sometimes and it works just like in houses there's no money paid by the buyer it all comes out of the selling commission. Right, right, but and that, that that kind of puts you in an interesting position, though, in, in kind of being able to see you kind know, of multiple sides of those those transactions. Um, and you spend um, like like a whole chapter in the book talking about that, which and I, I found that chapter to be be very interesting. Um, but maybe you can just kind of talk about um, the negotiating process a little bit and some of the pitfalls in that whole buyer broker surveyor relationship. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you found that interesting because one of the main goals of the book was to write something that really had never really been properly written about. And that is, you know, the seamy underside of used boat <laughs> sales. And, you know, I didn't care, you know, where the punches landed because I'd been seeing it my whole life. And uh, I wanted to help, you know, the naive innocents out there that were trying to get their dream boat and just explain the good parts and the bad parts. And there are some good parts. Um, for instance, um, a lot of a lot of people get a little bogged down on their initial offer, and let's say their budget is fifty grand, and and the boat that they really really like is asking fifty eight grand. So 
you know, I'll tell them, look, the boat's going to go through survey, whether it's me or somebody else, and a good surveyor is going to, you know, find some issues, especially on a 20-year-old boat. And, and so I always tell them, you know, you're going to get several bites of the apple. The process involves the initial offer, but then you have your due diligence. The due diligence is, of course, um, the survey, typically an out-of-the-water survey and a sea trial, sometimes on the same day. And then the, um, the other due diligence, which is optional, um, that some people will do and some won't, is um, – uh, a mechanical survey, you know, if it's a sailboat, it's typically going to have, you know, a 50-horse diesel or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then the rigging survey. And so, I mean, you can spend thousands and thousands on due diligence, but at a minimum, you should do the whole survey, which is what I do, the the general survey. Um, I do also pull oil for oil analysis um, for some, you know, clients who want to do something uh, that doesn't cost that much, but can tell them a lot about the older engine. So then the next the next phase, you, at any part of that process, you can bail out as long as it's a typical broker, a uh, uh, typical yacht broker. And of course, in Florida and Washington State and California, they are regulated. I don't think they're regulated in in most of the other states. Um, they're licensed and bonded in those three states, I believe. Anyway, but you at any point in that process, you can modify your offer. You can say, you know, the survey came back, and you know, I'm sorry. Um, uh, it's just uh, not shaping up the way we were hoping, and then you can either reject the boat out of hand, or you can say you want a reduction in the price and come up with your your offer, or you can do something, or or the broker, the selling broker, can do something called uh, a repair allowance, and they'll say, okay, well, we understand uh, your your offer was contingent on the survey, and you've offered us fifty thousand, but this this and this needs to be fixed, and then they may say, okay, well, we believe this can be fixed for. 500 bucks and this can be taken care of for 250 bucks and they go through their list and do a repair allowance that way. So I just try to tell people, don't get intimidated. Don't worry about the numbers still being a little high because you don't know what the number is going to end up at. And a lot of initial offers end up coming down 10 and even 20% by the time all is said and done. Right, right. Um, and, you, <laughs> and you mentioned um, a rigging and mechanical survey. Is that usually normally done by a separate uh, person? Yeah, there's a handful of surveyors. I only know of one in my market that will do a true aloft rigging survey as well as the hull survey. He's a younger guy, you know, good guy. He's a great surveyor. His name is Jeff Kaiser. And he will take his, you know, his eight to one block and tackle purchase and go all the way up and check the mass (laughs) truck and all of that, you know. And he, you know, it's a six hour survey. And of course, he's very expensive. But But it's one-stop shopping. Uh, everybody else, including myself, you know, surveyors tend to be, frankly, in their 50s, 60s, some in their 70s, and they're not going up mass anymore. So um, they will do a deck leveling, a deck level rigging survey, just as kind of a courtesy. But it's still not a true survey because obviously the aloft survey is very important too. And you know what you can see at deck level is helpful, but it's not the whole picture. Um, the mechanical. I would say that's the survey most commonly not done on sailboats. Um, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that a lot of people buying thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars sailboats, they're paying me, they're paying the haul out. They've they got the sea trial, which doesn't really cost anything, but there's still a certain amount of cooperation needed from the seller. But that's the one most commonly that's waived. I would guess is is that. For one thing, you cannot do really compression tests on the cylinders on a diesel the way you do on a gas engine. So really, it's oil analysis can be helpful. And like I said, you know, I am a surveyor that will pull oil and send it into a lab that will tell you 
if there's ethyl glycol in the oil, which would mean antifreeze, which is not good, or if there's water or any sulfation. Um, and then um, the smoke, you know, it, I always tell people, absolutely positively tell the seller that you want the engine stone cold when you arrive and that you're, they're going to put their hand on the block right away. And if it's warm, they're going to say, well, we'll come back another day. We, we want this engine stone cold. And you want to see a stone cold startup and immediately check what kind of exhaust you're getting. And obviously, uh, each color, you know, of exhaust is representative of something. You don't want blue smoke. You don't want black smoke. You might get some white smoke for a little while, some condensation, but hopefully not for long. And, uh, and that's one of the things I will do, obviously, as part of my, well, not obviously, but as part of my typical survey is the best I can do. But I tell my clients, you know, I'll do my best based on 35 years of, you know, uh, running boats with diesels, but uh, it's not a guarantee. Right, right. And I did, I highlighted that, uh, that passage in the book. <laughs> I'd never heard, motors are kind of like a black box to me. So I, well, I saw that, I was like, oh, that sounds like, that sounds like good advice. Um, but do you think, in, in, so between the, um, the making sure the motors, are, it, it's cold when it started and doing an um, uh, oil analysis, that covers your bases for most kind of common issues with diesels in general? Well, that and, of course, a thorough external check because um, I'll just give you one example. Um, I, I have come behind mechanical surveyors many times, meaning that the mechanical survey would happen first and then a few days later I'm coming on board. And I've seen them miss some stuff that's pretty important that can be very expensive to fix. <clears throat> For instance, uh, exhaust hoses. Exhaust hoses in sailboats, sometimes on a 45-foot boat, you've got a 20-foot a exhaust hose sometimes yeah. if the engine's right in the middle. And and they're just not changed very often. And the, the mechanical surveyor tends to just kind of sit there by the engine and look for oil leaks and whatever else he's going to do. But, you know, if you trace that exhaust hose back, you almost always find cracks and that it needs to be replaced if it's an older boat. And uh, that can be bloody expensive because of access issues and so forth. So, um, you know, you want to go and understand that you know, the exhaust hose and, and the muffler and everything else after the engine is critical. The running gear, super important. A lot of people <clears throat> don't understand that you absolutely have to haul the boat out. Um, I know it sounds crazy, but there I have a lot of clients that will try to save, you know, $400 and not haul the boat out. And I rarely will even do the survey in that case. Once in a while I will, but but rarely will I uh, do it and, and, you know, take any kind of liability for a survey where the boat's not coming out of the water because... Uh, Galvanic corrosion on the shaft, galvanic corrosion uh, on the prop. Mm -hmm. You know, it's easily a three or four thousand dollar number to deal with that. Right, right. Um, so, what would what would your advice be on on choosing a good surveyor? Obviously, you're on the West Coast, and and it sounds like uh, you have a good reputation. But in general, if someone's looking, uh, what's a good good way to start? Well, uh, you know, I've got some very strong feelings in that regard, especially with respect to certifications. Uh, the first thing I want to say is it's a completely unregulated industry. Uh, the only thing close to a regulation in the marine serving industry is banks and insurance companies. Um, so some banks, yeah, they're still under the NAMS, SAM things, uh, uh, certifications, um, and NAMS and SAMs are probably well known as uh, the largest um, certifying organizations. But... You know, I had a guy survey my boat that I had a lot of respect for out of Long Beach when I bought my boat. Uh, I was living in Mexico and I wanted a boat in California and he had zero certifications, nothing. But I'd known him for years and I knew he was very experienced and I had him do my survey. So, 
You know, uh, I, I kind of think there's a sweet spot, too, with age because most surveyors, not all of them, but most of them, you know, as they get into their 60s and 70s, uh, they've got the experience. But if you're really doing a good job as a surveyor, it's a pretty physical uh, effort. And, and you have to tell yourself, OK, that last floorboard in the aft cockpit, excuse me, in the aft cabin is a real pain to get out. But you know what? If I don't do it, I'm not going to see the shaft log or whatever it is under there. Right, and you right. got you got to be willing <clears throat> to get sweaty and get tired. And and so I think the sweet spot is probably 40s and 50s, a survey in their 40s and 50s personally. But anyway, having said that, uh, get a sample survey. Um, if they're on if they've uh, if they're on Yelp at all, Yelp is a little more of a West Coast phenomenon, but uh, that's always a good thing to look at. I don't put a, a lot of faith personally in the, the Google reviews, which are easily manipulated. Anybody can get five-star Google reviews. Uh, Yelp is easier. Uh, Yelp is harder, rather, to, uh, to get, uh, you know, any kind of a good rating. Um, and then after you've got the sample survey, um, you know, just go over, honestly, with them. Um, usually a phone call is best, just what your expectations are, and uh, especially maybe a time estimate. I mean, if if you've got a 40-foot boat you want surveyed and the guy says, yeah, it'll take me about an hour and a half, well, you know, that's kind of pushing it. That's, right, I don't right. care I don't, <laughs> I don't care how experienced the guy is. If he says he's going to do your 40-foot boat in an hour and a half, then you probably want to pass on him. Um, anyway, but yeah, reputation, is it's a reputation-driven business. You know, I was completely uncertified for, for the years I worked in Mexico, and it didn't really matter because, you know, people knew my reputation. I fell into surveying by accident because I was running a boatyard down there and, and I was doing a lot of estimates for insurance companies after hurricanes. Mm -hmm. And uh, and they told me, you know, the, the repair estimates you write up are better than a lot of the surveys we get. So we'd really like you to do surveying. I said, well, I don't have any certifications. They said they didn't care. And so I started surveying part time while I was in Mexico. Cool. Cool. Um, yeah, it sounds like a cool way to get into it. Um so I, I want to kind of maybe transition a little bit into uh, into talking about boats. So a big part of your book uh, is is a list of boats and, and kind of pros and cons and some, uh, you know, different aspects of them. Um, but I wanted to ask you, you know, so one of the kind of criteria um, for selection to make the list was, was boats that are less than 30 years old um, for obvious reasons, I guess. But would you consider uh, an older boat that had been extensively refit um, – to be a mistake if, if someone was looking for, for to buy a new boat? No, not if they're not worried about U.S. marinas. A lot of that is because there's a huge bias now by both insurance companies and uh, U.S. and Canadian marinas and even some Mexican marinas. Uh, they will reject out of hand a boat that's that old. They will just automatically because uh, – uh, they have a bias where, you know, they're worried about the boat sinking and being a liability, even though, you know, it, it, it's sometimes, uh, completely ridiculous. Now, some marinas will request a survey and say, okay, your boat is this old. We'll take it if it passes survey, you know, and whatever that means. But, uh, I do quite a few of those actually in the Bay area on older boats. Uh, I probably do two a month. Wow. I call, I call them marina screening surveys, but basically, <laughs> basically it's a, an insurance survey. And it's because a person, you know, the, the Bay Area market is just insane right now as far as housing. So a lot of people are, right. are you know, right. living on boats and and the marina doesn't want this 35-year-old boat to suddenly be showing just its mast from the bottom of the slip, you know. So um, I get called in to basically <laughs> sort of pass judgment and say, no, this boat's not a, 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 you know, a liability as far as sinking is in my opinion. And I'll usually have a list of things that need to be 
dealt with. But anyway, um, to get back to the 30-year-old thing, some of the strongest hulls built, probably the strongest hulls built, are, you know, like a Pearson area, like your boat and right, others. Right. Uh, you know, they, they, you know those are three-quarter-inch thick uh, boats. Uh, they, there's nothing wrong with those hulls. Even if they've got some blisters, there's nothing wrong with the hulls. Um, so whether it's a 30-year-old boat or a 15-year-old boat, I think it boils down to what you have to do to get that boat to where you want it. So um, you can put a ton of money into a 15-year-old boat, even a five-year-old boat if you want to. Uh, you just have to have the discipline. And, and the hardest part is if you're going in with very little experience and you don't realize, for instance, how much sales cost. I've had people get boats that seem okay, but they've got a ratty old main and a ratty old jib. And then people start to realize, oh my gosh, I just bought this boat and it's going to cost me $7,000 to get some <laughs> decent sales for it. You know? Yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, 30-year-old boat, I'm not against it at all, but unfortunately, a lot of insurance companies and marinas are. And do you have a feeling, is that more of a West Coast phenomenon? Because I've, I've not heard that issue here. Now, I mean, we're in rural Virginia, so the, the marinas around here are probably not as picky as maybe they are in the D.C. area or Boston area, say, but... Um, do you have any idea if that's if that's mostly yeah, no, it, rural? I mean, I'm from Arlington, Virginia. I know a little bit about Chesapeake Bay, and you know, you get down into, uh, you know, if your check clears, they don't care. So um, <laughs> the other more the other more urban areas, they they do care, and frankly, they care about the aesthetic part of it too, mm -hmm. because a 30 year old boat is much more likely to be an eyesore than the newer ones. So. You know, if your marina is only half full, they're going to bend over backwards probably to get you in. But if you're trying to get into your typical West Coast uh, marina, which is, you know, usually pretty darn full and a lot of the Florida marinas, yep. some of the Northeast marinas, you're going to find uh, that there's a bias. Unfortunately, there's a huge bias against wood boats. I mean, that is really hard. And 30 uh, year old boats, uh, insurance companies don't like them. Um you know, again, a lot of them will take it with a survey, but the survey is going to be, you know, right away, five, six hundred bucks. And you're going to have to put in. I mean, it's not unusual for the survey to cost more than your insurance policy. You know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so what are um, if, if someone was looking at an older boat to purchase, what are some kind of potential issues maybe specific to boats that have been been around the block a time or two? Well, I would say look for amateur work, you know, I mean, when you. You know, look behind the breaker panel, and if you see just a rat's nest of wiring in there and, you know, one butt connector spliced to another butt connector, <laughs> you know, um, if the lights are all dim when you turn on the lights, even though the battery's at 13 volts, you know, and you've got voltage drop, I mean, uh, uh, electrical is a huge thing that a lot of people don't know how to deal with, even though DC systems are actually pretty simple, um, but it is a huge pain to rewire a boat. And that's one of the things I often point out is you know, there is a life expectancy for wiring, especially in a saltwater environment. I mean, right. a lot of manufacturers talk about 25 years, 20 years, maybe you get to 30 years, but I've pulled off dome lights on sailboats, especially Taiwanese boats. I've pulled off dome lights and literally had copper powder come raining down <laughs> on me, you know? So, uh, and that is a huge access problem because the materials, the wiring itself is probably under $700, $600, but the access to get in and do all those wire runs, I've seen people do external wire runs with staple guns, you know, because it's such a pain to deal with the, the wire up in the headliner. Yeah. Um, so, so that's one thing. The electrical is, can be a nightmare. Um, you know, you don't have to worry too much about, um, 
basic gel coat uh, issues like gouges and scratches. But if you have tons and tons of hairline cracks, a lot of people think mistakenly that hairline cracks can just be backfilled with primer and then painted. Well, you know, that's going to look good for a year or two, but those cracks will come back. And uh, dealing with with wholesale gel coat cracking or crazing, as it's called, is a big problem. So, uh, you know, I mean, I have the O'Day 40 in my list uh, on my list of possible candidates, but that particular boat, you got to watch out because unfortunately they had some pretty bad gel coat uh, runs in that production run. And uh, so I always worry about gel coat. Um, things like, uh, I know how to get sales cheap. So frankly, I don't worry too much about sales because there's a place near you in Annapolis. It's fantastic. Right. Uh, bacon. Yeah. Yeah. Bacon is fantastic. I've been getting sales from them for years. So but, uh, you know, I'll talk down the boat. I'll say, oh, I don't know if I want to spend 35 grand if it's a boat I'm looking right, at. Right, you know? right. <laughs> uh, I got all the money I got to put out for sale, you know, and then I'll turn around, buy the boat, and I'll get sales for three grand instead of seven grand. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> um, and um, other issues, I guess, would be, I guess the, the thing is to check out on the hidden stuff, for instance, rudder stocks, okay? On an older Taiwan boat, it is not unheard of for you to be out a third of the way to Tahiti, and unfortunately, you know, honey, you know, I don't have any steering. What's going on? You look back, and your rudder is floating away behind you. Um, and that happens when you get old Taiwanese stainless rudder stocks that have been um, aging in salt water for 30 years. So that is something that a lot of surveyors are simply not going to be able to really check. They're going to have a small gap at the bottom, you know, maybe the three-eighths of an inch or half an inch or maybe a little more where they can actually see something. But they don't have, you know, uh, X-ray vision or anything to see what's going on with rudder tabbing. Mm -hmm. So with those kinds of things, sometimes you can get some help from the internet. You know, uh, I came up behind. Uh, when I say come up behind, I mean after the fact. I did a uh, Chris Craft 35 just as a consultation about two weeks ago, and they had bought the boat off Craigslist, super cheap, and, you know, I normally wouldn't even get close to a boat like this, but, you know, they were just begging me on the phone. <laughs> so I went down, <laughs> and we're sitting there at the marina, and this was a uh, marina that shoaled in uh, with mud regularly, and a lot of the sailboats, frankly, were completely in the mud at low tide. Mm -hmm. So they thought that you know, they had no steering when they tried to take it to the boat yard, no steering at all. And they just sort of nursed it back into the slip with the help of a dinghy. And, and we turn the wheel and we see the top of the rudder stock moving. And I say, well, it seems like it's there, but you know, bottom line is they hauled the boat out after getting towed to the boatyard. There was no rudder there. The rudder was gone. Wow. And, um, it had sheared right off from the, I guess from the waiting and unwaiting there in the slip, but it was a 40 year old rudder stock. And, you know, you don't want to lose your rudder. So, in fact, I always tell people that want to go blue water, my God, get a, an emergency rudder uh, or at least have, you know, some kind of uh, vein steering that can work. But uh, anyway, so, you know, as far as what you're looking for, yeah, the electrical, I always think, is a big issue. Uh, hidden stainless steel issues if the boat has a reputation for chain plates that fail or for rudder stocks that fail. The stuff you can see, you know, at least you can get a a handle on it. You can see the gel coat scratches. You can see the, the tattered sails, but there's a lot of stuff you can't see that might be a nightmare for you. Gotcha. Gotcha. And are there any kind of warning signs to you? Like if you step on a boat that maybe has been cleaned up or something, but are there any kind of warning signs that uh, that a boat's been neglected and, and, uh, and is, is kind of uh, in need of 
major uh, major repairs? Well, yeah. I mean, um, I, I think the the most important thing I do is to focus on areas that are rarely accessed by the owner. I mean, they it's so typical for them to put money into new upholstery or decent upholstery, mm-hmm. but not to put in the money into the, the 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 real guts of the boat that's important. You know, the shaft log. What does the shaft log look like? Is is the um, is there pitting uh, in the shaft? near the shaft log because if there is then you may need to replace the entire shaft well guess what that means sometimes that the rudder has to come off well guess what if the rudder has to come off that's easily a thousand bucks right there then you've got to get the the, the bloody uh, shaft out a new one machine put i mean it's just huge amount of it money to replace. up yeah yeah so i kind of focus on the hidden stuff i mean electronics um i don't you know, people are always, it seems like the first thing when somebody buys a boat, especially a powerboat, is they put in a lot of money in electronics. Well, I always tell them, look, if you have a budget of X, put most of it into the guts that really matter, you know, um, you know the, the running gear, which for those who don't know is the shaft and, and the prop and the strut, you know, basically everything that makes the boat move, mm-hmm. uh, metal underwater. And... Um, and then uh, if you have some money left over and you want to get the newest, um, you know, uh, what's popular now, probably uh, Fusion Stereo, something like that, you know, that's fine. But uh, get the boat safe and concentrate on electrical also. People will do the craziest things to jury rig electrical. I mean, you'll see six tiny little wires going into uh, uh, the positive post on a battery, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. It's just a, a scary nightmare, and uh, instead of hiring a professional if they don't want to do it themselves, but get the thing safe and uh, and then worry about the uh, the monogram towels in the head. You right, know? right. <laughs> um, so, kind of another criteria in your book for for the boats that were on the list was was a, a decent production run. Um, but what about boats that maybe there was only a few of them made, or from a, a you know a manufacturer that no one's ever heard of? Um, do you have any suggestions on on resources for researching into into boats, but whether there you know there was a lot of them made or not? Well, obviously, the fewer boats out there, the fewer owners that can really help you with any kind of feedback. You know, um, I mean, the the um, the websites that are well known will come up pretty readily on something like a, a Morgan thirty eight or an Islander thirty six. But if you come up with something that was semi-production, you know, it's going to obviously be harder. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of some of them, but they're in the book. Um, I would say that's when a surveyor is even more important than mm-hmm. normal, uh, is when you're getting into, um, a low production run boat or even a custom boat. And that's not to say you avoid them because it's, first of all, it's kind of neat to, oh, I always like boats that are unique and people don't recognize them right away. I've always enjoyed that. Yeah, you know, yeah for sure. I, you know, I've always had not always, but about half of my boats, and I've owned like 12 or 13 boats, most of them sailboats. Uh, I've had some pretty unique ones. I had a Cartwright 40, which uh, a lot of people did not know, and that yeah. thing had a lot of weather helm, but it was one of the strongest boats I'd ever seen. But, uh, you know, and I got it cheap, and it was fun while I had it. But there's a, I would oh, Sorry, no, I said there was a, there's a Cartwright. I don't think it's a 40. I think it's a 30 or a 35 in Urbana Creek, right, right kind of up the river from where we're at. It's cool. It, it, it was an owner, I think it's an owner-finished boat. It looks a little, there's a couple of little goofy things about it, but it's it's a cool boat. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Cartwright 40 I had was finished by a guy up in the Northwest. I got it dirt cheap, and it was really, I mean, the, 
it had knees, even though it was a fiberglass hull, it had knees that were incredibly strong and only, I think they were 24-inch centers or something. It was uh-huh. a yeah, yeah. ridiculously overbuilt boat. It's the only boat I've ever been on where nothing flexed at all. And I weigh 240 pounds and nothing nothing flexed anywhere, So, uh, at least of that size. Uh, anyway, so yeah, I would just say a marine surveyor is super, super important if you're going to get into uh, – you know, a more unique uh, custom or semi-custom boat, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that makes a lot of sense. So I also wanted to talk, you've, you've also written a cruising guide uh, called the Baja Bash um, about the uh, the windward trip from Mexico uh, up, up to the U.S. West Coast. Um, right. And uh, so for my West Coast listeners, I'm sure they, they'd appreciate hearing about this, but what prompted you to write the book and, and kind of what kind of general advice do you have for, for someone contemplating that trip? Yeah, um, that happened when I got into, well, you remember I, I told you I got back dirt poor from my first Mexico trip, and then I did, I think I did one other. And anyway, uh, as a veteran of uh, whopping three Baja bashes, I decided, you know what, I'm going to do this for a living, and I thought I could make a living at it. So I ended up doing, in a fairly short period, I think three years, I did probably I don't know, something like, without exaggerating, probably about 10 to 12 Baja bashes. <laughs> yeah, wow. And so I got, you know, pretty knowledgeable at it, and it was amazing how I, I could predict, you know, especially the nighttime winds, the offshore winds that would happen in some of those bays. I, and and I, I towards the end of that period where I was doing a lot of them, I had some buddy boats that were coming with me, and they would, you know, they would listen to me telling them, okay, at 11 o'clock tonight, you're going to get wind offshore here northeast at about 25 knots, but don't worry, it'll die in about four hours, you know, and... And they said, when we made it to San Diego, they said, Jim, you should write a book. It's amazing. <laughs> the wind came in exactly like you thought. So um, the main reason I wrote it, though, really was most West Coast, most California sailors, other than San Francisco Bay, they don't get, you know, nasty conditions. They're going downwind to Mexico. It's pretty benign. But when you turn around and go up into it, especially certain capes, um, you know, it can be pretty nasty. And um, you can just sit in Cabo San Lucas like I did for years, well, three or four years, and wait for some of these boats to try to get around Cabo Falso, which is sort of like the Cape Horn of Baja, you know. Uh-huh. And they'll come back in with, you know, big white eyes and looking for a way to just fly out in the next plane. And they hand you – I've literally had handed to me without people knowing me at all other than the marina manager recommending me saying, here are the keys to my beautiful um, 40-footer. Uh, and here's 50% of your delivery fee, please get the boat to San Diego. I mean, it can be <laughs> literally that fast. And and then I say, okay, no problem. And then, of course, I know what I'm doing. I take my time. I try to wait for a window. So to go over the points, it would be uh, try, if you can, to avoid spring. The worst months to go up that coast are definitely um, March, April, May. It starts to get better in June. Sometimes you have a perfectly good delivery in January and February if you go between you know fronts. And then uh, take advantage of that weather window and go at night. It's definitely because it is coastal. You definitely get a drop in the wind from 11 p.m. to 11 a.m. So I talk about that a lot. Mm-hmm. And then uh, definitely have your boat ready because uh, you're going to have the fuel tanks especially are going to get agitated. And a lot of people have uh, been sitting, their boat will be sitting in Mexico for sometimes years without really having gone anywhere other than out to a, an island in the Sea of Cortez. And so all of a sudden the algae, if there is algae, and there often is, that's built up on the tank, is getting knocked off as you go slamming into four-foot waves for hours at a time. And it basically just uh, clogs the fuel filter one after the other. Right, right. 
Um, anyway, that and then just um, be patient. Um, uh, one of the more unusual ones I ever had was halfway down. There's a place called Turtle Bay, and it is really just in the middle of nowhere. But there's a plane, an old DC-3, I talk about in the book, uh, literally a 1950s DC-3 that flew in there. This was 20 years ago, but it flew in there twice a week to pick up abalone. It was called the Abalone Express, and there was a big abalone fishery there. The guys would dive and, you know, get this abalone. Cool, cool, yeah. And I uh, got hired uh, over the radio by this couple that was trying to get a Cal uh, 246 up. Oh, no, no, it was a Gulf Star, Gulf Star 50. And uh, they were an older couple, and they had just had it. You know, they'd been getting beat up, and but they were halfway. So they anchored the boat. They hired me. I flew in, literally flew in from Ensenada and finished the trip single-handed on that boat. And um, with a tiny little wheel pilot, it had a, an Autohelm 3000 wheel pilot, if uh-huh. you can believe that, on a, on a Gulf Star 50. But I managed, <laughs> I managed to, to finish it. But anyway, yeah, so those tips are in the book, and that book is still in print. Cool, cool. Um, and I and I do want to be respectful of your time, um, but I just had, did have a couple, couple more quick questions, and I wanted to end um, with a question less about about boats and, and surveys and more about um, you talk about kind of the attitude of, of, of a successful cruiser in the book a bit, uh, and you write that while you were living down in, in Cabo San Lucas, uh, you saw a lot of sailors come through, uh, and that the happiness index wasn't always related to the uh, the size of the boat or the size of the bank account. Um, so what do you think some of kind of common factors are for people, for sailors with a high happiness index? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, uh, it obviously will vary with the individual a little bit. But um, I think the, a lot of it boils down to compatibility of the crew. You know, is this a solid couple that it was both of their dreams or at least it was maybe 70 percent him, 30 percent her or 60 percent her and 40 percent him as opposed to 90 percent for one party and 10% for the other party, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, um, do they have nagging ties that keep them? I mean, it depends on what type of cruiser they are. I mean, there, there's some that don't want any ties at all. You know, uh, they've sold everything, and others have still got businesses they're trying to run. There, there's the commuter cruiser that's going in and back and forth. But for the true cruisers, the, the ones that seem to be out the longest and had that high happiness index, they had a real comfort level with their ability to fix almost anything on the boat other than an advanced diesel problem. Um, another thing, I know this sounds crazy and may be surprising, but the the ones that were the happiest also genuinely enjoyed the boat maintenance. I know that sounds crazy, but they actually enjoyed working on their boat. Um, if you don't enjoy the maintenance, especially if you had an older boat, you're not going to enjoy cruising because I think the best description I've ever heard of cruising, I, I cracked up 10 years ago when I heard this is, Cruising is yacht maintenance in exotic ports. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> because that's often what it is, especially if, uh, I mean, there's not going to be any resources there in, in a lot of these places, you know. I mean, if you got to bleed your Perkins 4108 and you're in Costa Rica, there may be some truck mechanic somewhere but who can help you. But otherwise, you know, you uh, need to do it on your own. And um, uh, But th- I can tell you there's a lot of little things that have broken it up not just the typical marriage stress things where you know the, usually the guy has got the authority and all that it, it, and the knowledge it's it's other things that can be more subtle like um, grandkids you know I mean if you're a lot of cruisers are in their 60s or 70s and have grandkids mm-hmm. and 
And, you know, they start to really miss their grandkids and they, they kind of think, oh, this is not for us, you know, and they've spent tons of money, but it, they really want to be home, you know, more with them. So if you've got those ties that are going to linger and be a problem, then it's not going to necessarily be happy time for you. But if you are really comfortable, if you're a real ocean lover, um, you know, it starts with that. It's the people who love the ocean, right. whether, they, whether they come from a surfing background or just a an ocean gazing background. It doesn't matter, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got that, got that fire a little bit. Exactly. For sure. Um, cool. Well, this is this has been uh, this has been great, Jim. And, and so finally, where can um, where can people find you online? Um, probably the easiest way to find the book is just Elfers, a real unusual German name, E L F E R S, and then Blue Water. If you just Google Elfers Blue Water, it'll take you to the Amazon uh, link for the book, which is available both as a, a Kindle book and in the the paperback version and uh, Baja Bash is still available too through Point Loma Press. Uh, it's in its third printing. Um, every time I think I'm done with it, they, they ask me to start printing again. <laughs> so we publish it again. Cool. Cool. It's great. Um, yeah. So, so thanks so much for your time. And uh, yeah, it's, I've, I've really, I've really enjoyed the book. I highly recommend uh, that anyone interested uh, pick it up and, uh, and I've, I've enjoyed uh, speaking with you. Well, great, Chris. Good luck to you and uh, hope to see you out in the, the waters one of these days. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. There you have it, folks. Thanks again to Jim for coming on the podcast. I'm still a bit amazed that I can call call up someone like him and pick his brain. It's definitely a privilege. Jim's book is Blue Water Sailing on a Budget, and it is available on Amazon. The Baja Bash, as mentioned, a cruising guide for the windward return trip up the west coast of North America, is available through Point Luma Publishing, and their website is mexicoboating.com. Jim's surveying business is called Mandalay Marine, and he works in the San Francisco Bay Area. One thing that I thought several times in, in talking to Jim was that I wish I had found his book prior to embarking on our two-year refit of our Pearson Aerial Firefly. And I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek because, well, because A, I, I love that boat uh, more than I probably should. <laughs> and B, I really did learn a lot about working on boats through the course of that project. Ryan and I largely uh, also enjoyed working on the boat together, uh, and I wouldn't I wouldn't trade that experience. Um but I'm also not eager to do a deck recore again, or build a new rudder, or fix a crazed gel coat. I could go on. Uh, but I find, as I'm sure many of you listeners do as well, that as my time becomes scarcer, I'd much rather be sailing than fixing. And I think that's the value of Jim's book. Until next time. <laughs> That's it for this episode of The Bonnie Boat. Thanks for listening. I know time is my most scarce resource these days, so I appreciate you uh, choosing to spend your time listening here. One of the reasons I decided to throw my hat into the podcast ring is to get in touch with other like-minded sailing maniacs. To that end, if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email me at thebonnieboat at gmail.com. You can find us online at thebonnieboat.wordpress.com. And remember, to be a sailor, you don't need a YouTube channel with 100,000 video subscribers. You don't need an Instagram account with pictures of beautiful people in their bathing suits. You certainly don't need a podcast. You don't even need a boat. You just need to go sailing. 
Until next time, this is Firefly standing by on Channel 16.